Section 17 of The Quintessence of Ibsenism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philip Panos. The Quintessence of Ibsenism by George Bernard Shaw. Section 17. Appendix. I have a word or two to add as to the difficulties which Ibsen's philosophy places in the way of those who are called on to impersonate his characters on the stage in England, his idealist figures, at once higher and more mischievous than ordinary Philistines, puzzle by their dual aspect the conventional actor, who persists in assuming that if he is to be selfish on the stage he must be villainous, that if he is to be self-sacrificing and scrupulous he must be a hero, and if that he is to satirize himself unconsciously he must be comic he is constantly striving to get back to familiar ground by reducing his part to one of the stage types with which he is familiar and which he has learnt to present by rule of thumb the more experienced he is the more certain is he to de-ibsenize the play into a melodrama or a farcical comedy of the common sort give him helmer to play and he begins by declaring that the part is a mass of inconsistencies and ends by suddenly grasping the idea that it is only joseph's surface over again give him gregor's verley the devotee of truth and he will first play him in the vein of george washington and then when he finds that the audience laughs at him instead of taking him respectfully rush to the conclusion that gregor's is only his old friend the truthful milkman in a phenomenon in a smock frock and begin to play for the laughs and relish them that is, if there are only laughs enough to make the part completely comic. Otherwise, he will want to omit the passages which provoke them. To be laughed at when playing a serious part is hard upon an actor, and still more upon an actress. It is derision than which nothing is more terrible to whose livelihood depends on public approbation, and whose calling produces an abnormal development of self-consciousness. Now, Ibsen undoubtedly does freely require from his artists that they shall not only possess great skill and power on every plane of their art, but that they shall also be ready to make themselves acutely ridiculous sometimes at the very climax of their most deeply felt passages. It is not to be wondered at that they prefer to pick and choose among the lines of their parts, retaining the great professional opportunities afforded by the tragic scenes, and leaving out the touches which complete the portrait at the expense of the model's vanity. If an actress of established reputation were asked to play Hedda Gabler, her first impulse would probably be to not only turn Hedda into a Bronvilliers or a Borgia or a Forget-me-not, but to suppress all the meaner callosities and odiousnesses which detract from Hedda's dignity as dignity is estimated on the stage. The result would be about as satisfactory to a skilled critic as that of the retouching which has made shop-window photography the most worthless of the arts. The whole point of an Ibsen play lies in the exposure of the very conventions upon which are based those by which the actor is ridden. 
Charles Surface or Tom Jones may be very effectively played by artists who fully accept the morality professed by Joseph Surface and Blyfell. Neither Fielding nor Sheridan forces upon either actor or audience the dilemma that since Charles and Tom are lovable, there must be something hopelessly inadequate in the commercial and sexual morality which condemns them as a pair of blackguards the ordinary actor will tell you that the authors do not defend their hero's conduct not seeing that making them lovable is the most complete defence of their conduct that could possibly be made how far fielding and sheridan saw it how far moliere or mozart were convinced that the statue had right on his side when he threw don juan into the bottomless pit how far milton went in his sympathy with lucifer all of these are speculative points which no actor has hitherto been called upon to solve but they are the very subjects of ibsen's plays those whose interest and curiosity are not excited by them find him the most puzzling and tedious of dramatists he has not only made lost women lovable but he has recognized and avowed that this is a vital justification for them and has accordingly explicitly argued on their side and awarded them the sympathy which poetic justice grants only to the righteous he has made the terms lost and ruined in this sense ridiculous by making women apply them to men with the most ludicrous effect hence ibsen cannot be played from the conventional point of view to make that practicable the plays would have to be rewritten in the rewriting the fascination of the part would vanish and with it their attraction for the performers a doll's house was adapted in this fashion though not at the instigation of an actress but the adaptation fortunately failed otherwise we might have to endure in ibsen's case what we have already endured in that of shakespeare many of whose plays were supplanted for centuries by incredibly debased versions of which sibber's richard the third and garrick's catherine and petruchio have lasted to our own time Taking Tama's estimate of 18 years as the apprenticeship of a completely accomplished stage artist, there is little encouragement to offer Ibsen parts to our finished actors and actresses. They do not understand them and would not play them in their integrity if they could be induced to attempt them. In England, only two women, in the full maturity of their talent, have hitherto meddled with Ibsen. One of these, Miss Genevieve Ward, who created the part of Lona Hessel in the English version of Pillars of Society, had the advantage of exceptional enterprise and intelligence, and of a more varied culture and experience of life and art than are common in her profession. The other, Mrs. Theodore Wright, the first English Mrs. Alving, was hardly known to the dramatic critics, though her personality and her artistic talent as an amateur reciter and actress had been familiar to the members of the most advanced social and political bodies in London since the days of the International it was precisely because her record lay outside the beaten track of newspaper criticism that she was qualified to surprise its writers as she did in every other instance the women who first ventured upon playing ibsen heroines were young actresses whose ability had not before been fully tested and whose technical apprenticeships were far from complete 
miss janet a church though she settled the then disputed question of the feasibility of ibsen's plays on the english stage by her impersonation of nora in eighteen eighty nine which still remains the most complete artistic achievement in the new genre had not been long enough on the stage to secure a unanimous admission of her genius though it was of the most irresistible and irrepressible kind miss florence farr who may claim the palm for artistic courage and intellectual conviction in selecting for her experiment rosmersholm incomparably the most difficult and dangerous as it is also the greatest of ibsen's later plays had almost relinquished her profession from lack of interest in its routine after spending a few years in acting farcical comedies miss elizabeth robbins and miss marion lee whose unaided enterprise we owe our earlier acquaintance with hedda gabler on the stage were like miss a church and miss farr juniors in their profession all four were products of the modern movement for the higher education of women literate in touch with advanced thought and coming by natural predilection on the stage from outside the theatrical class in contradistinction to the senior generation of inveterately sentimental actresses schooled in the old fashion if at all born into their profession quite out of the political and social movement around them in short intellectually naive to the last degree the new school says to the old you cannot play ibsen because you are ignoramuses to which the old school retorts you cannot play anything because you are amateurs but taking amateur in its sense of unpractised executant both schools are amateur as far as ibsen's plays are concerned the old technique breaks down in the new theatre for though in theory it is a technique of general application making the artist so plastic that he can mould himself to any shape designed by the dramatist in practice it is but a stock of tones and attitudes out of which by appropriate selection and combination a certain limited number of conventional stage figures can be made up it is no more possible to get an ibsen character out of it than to contrive a greek costume out of an english wardrobe and some of the attempts already made have been so grotesque that at present when one of the more specifically ibsenian parts has to be filled it is actually safer to entrust it to a novice than to a competent and experienced actor a steady improvement may be expected in the performances of ibsen's plays as the young players whom they interest gain the experience needed to make mature artists of them they will gain this experience not only in plays by ibsen himself but in the works of dramatists who will have been largely influenced by ibsen playwrights who formerly only compounded plays according to the received prescriptions for producing tears or laughter are already taking their profession seriously to the full extent of their capacity and venturing more and more to substitute the incidents and catastrophes of spiritual history for the swoons surprises discoveries murders duels assassinations and intrigues which are the commonplaces of the theatre at present others who have no such impulse find themselves forced to raise the quality of their work by the fact that even those who witness ibsen's plays with undisguised weariness and aversion find when they return to their accustomed theatrical fare that they have suddenly become conscious of absurdities and artificialities in it which never troubled them before 
in just the same way the painters of the naturalist school reformed their opponents much more extensively than the number of their own direct admirers indicates for example it is still common to hear the most contemptuous abuse and ridicule of monet and whistler from persons who have nevertheless had their former tolerance of the unrealities of the worst type of conventional studio picture wholly destroyed by these painters until quite lately too musicians were heard to be extolling donizetti in the same breath with which they had vehemently decried wagner they would make wry faces at every chord in tristan und isolde and never suspected that their old faith was shaken until they went back to la favorite and found that it had become as obsolete as the rhymed tragedies of lee and otway in the drama then we may depend on it that though we shall not have another ibsen yet nobody will write for the stage after him as most playwrights wrote before him this will involve a corresponding change in the technical stock in trade of the actor whose ordinary training will then cease to be a positive disadvantage to him when he is entrusted with an ibsen part no one need fear on this account that ibsen will gradually destroy melodrama it might as well be assumed that shakespeare will destroy music-hall entertainments or the prose romances of william morris supersede the illustrated police news all forms of art rise with the culture and capacity of the human race but the forms rise together the higher forms do not return upon and submerge the lower the wretch who finds his happiness in setting a leash of greyhounds on a hare or in watching a terrier killing rats in a pit may evolve into the mere blockhead who would rather go to a free and easy and chuckle over a dull silly obscene song but such a step will not raise him to the level of the frequenter of music halls of the better class where though the entertainment is administered in small separate doses or turns yet the turns have some artistic pretension above him again is the patron of that elementary form of sensational drama in which there is hardly any more connection between the incidents than the fact that the same people take part in them and call forth some very simple sort of moral judgment by being consistently villainous or virtuous throughout as such a drama would be almost as enjoyable if the acts were played in the reverse of their appointed order no inconvenience except that of a back seat is suffered by the playgoer who comes in for half price at nine o'clock on a higher plane we have dramas with a rational sequence of incidents the interest of any one of which depends on those which have preceded it and as we go up from plane to plane we find this sequence becoming more and more organic until at last we come to a class of play in which nobody can understand the last act who has not seen the first also accordingly the institution of half price at nine o'clock does not exist at theatres devoted to plays of this class the highest type of play is completely homogeneous often consisting of a single very complex incident and not even the most exhaustive information as to the story enables a spectator to receive the full force of the impression aimed at in any given passage if he enters the theatre for that passage alone the success of such plays depends on the exercise by the audience of powers of memory imagination insight reasoning and sympathy which only a small minority of the play-going public at present possesses 
to the rest the higher drama is as disagreeably perplexing as the game of chess is to a man who has barely enough capacity to understand skittles consequently just as we have the chess club and the skittle alley prospering side by side we shall have the theatre of shakespeare moliere goethe and ibsen prospering alongside that of henry arthur jones and gilbert of sardou grundy and pinero of buchanan and Onet, as naturally as these already prosper alongside that of petit and sims which again does no more harm to the music halls than the music halls do to the waxworks or even the rat pit although this last is dropping into the limbo of discarded brutalities by the same progressive movement that has led the intellectual playgoer to discard sardou and take to ibsen it has often been said that political parties progress serpent-wise the tail being to-day where the head was formerly yet never overtaking the head the same figure may be applied to grades of playgoers with the reminder that this sort of serpent grows at the head and drops off joints of his tail as he glides along therefore it is not only inevitable that new theatres should be built for the new first class of playgoers but that the best of the existing theatres should gradually be converted to their use even at the cost of ousting in spite of much angry protest the old patrons who are being left behind by the movement the resistance of the old playgoers to the new plays will be supported by the elder managers the elder actors and the elder critics one manager pities ibsen for his ignorance of effective playwriting and declares that he can see exactly what ought to have been done to make a real play of hedda gabler his case is parallel to that of mr henry irving who saw exactly what ought to have been done to make a real play of goethe's faust and got mr wills to do it a third manager repelled and disgusted by ibsen condemns hedda as totally deficient in elevating moral sentiment one of the plays which he prefers is sardou's la tosca clearly these three representative gentlemen all eminent both as actors and managers will hold by the conventional drama until the commercial success of ibsen forces them to recognize that in the course of nature they are falling behind the taste of the day Mr. Thorne, at the Vaudeville Theatre, was the first leading manager who ventured to put a play of Ibsen's into his evening bill, and he did not do so until Miss Elizabeth Robbins and Miss Marion Lee had given ten experimental performances at his theatre at their own risk. Mr. Charrington and Miss Janet Achurch, who long before that staked their capital and reputation on a doll's house, had to take a theatre and go into management themselves for the purpose. The production of Rosmersholm was not a managerial enterprise in the ordinary sense at all. It was an experiment made by Miss Farr, who played Rebecca, an experiment too, which was considerably hampered by the refusal of the London managers to allow members of their companies to take part in the performance. In short, the senior division would have nothing to say for themselves in the matter of the one really progressive theatrical movement of their time, but for the fact that Mr. W. H vernon's effort to obtain a hearing for pillars of society in eighteen eighty was the occasion of the first appearance of the name of ibsen on an english playbill 
but it had long been obvious that the want of a playhouse at which the aims of the management should be unconditionally artistic was not likely to be supplied either at our purely commercial theatres or at those governed by actor-managers reigning absolutely over all the other actors a power which a young man abuses to provide opportunities for himself and which an older man uses in an old-fashioned way mr william archer in an article in the fortnightly review invited private munificence to endow a national theatre and some time later a young dutchman mr j t grine an enthusiast in theatrical art came forward with a somewhat similar scheme private munificence remained irresponsive fortunately one must think since it was a feature of both plans that the management of the endowed theatre should be handed over to committees of managers and actors of established reputation in other words to the very people whose deficiencies have created the whole difficulty mr grine however being very prepared to take any practicable scheme in hand himself soon saw the realities of the situation well enough to understand that to wait for the floating of a fashionable utopian enterprise with the prince of wales as president and a capital of at least twenty thousand pounds would be to wait for ever he accordingly hired a cheap public hall in tottenham court road and though his resources fell far short of those with which an ambitious young professional man ventures upon giving a dance made a bold start by announcing a performance of ghosts to inaugurate the independent theatre on the lines of the theatre libre of paris the result was that he received sufficient support both in money and gratuitous professional aid to enable him to give the performance at the royalty theatre and throughout the following week he shared with ibsen the distinction of being abusively discussed to an extent that must have amply convinced him that his efforts had not passed unheeded possibly he may have counted on being handled generously for the sake of his previous services in obtaining some consideration for the contemporary english drama on the continent even to the extent of bringing about the translation and production in foreign theatres of some of the most popular of our recent plays but if he had any such hope it was not fulfilled for he received no quarter wherever and at present it is clear that unless those who appreciate the service he has rendered to theatrical art in england support him as energetically as his opponents attack him it will be impossible for him to maintain the performances of the independent theatre at the pitch of efficiency and frequency which will be needed if it is to have any wide effect on the taste and seriousness of the playgoing public one of the most formidable and exasperating obstacles in his way is the detestable censorship exercised by the official licenser of plays a public nuisance of which it seems impossible to rid ourselves under existing parliamentary conditions the licenser has the london theatres at his mercy through his power to revoke their licenses and he is empowered to exact a fee for reading each play submitted to him so that his income depends on his allowing no play to be produced without going through that ordeal as these powers are granted to him in order that he may forbid the performance of plays which would have an injurious effect on public morals the unfortunate gentleman is bound in honour to try to do his best to keep the stage in the right path which he of course can set about in no other way than by making it a reflection of his individual views which are necessarily dictated by his temperament and by the political and pecuniary interests of his class 
this he does not dare to do self-mistrust and the fear of public opinion paralyze him whenever either the strong hand or the open mind claims its golden opportunity and the net result is that indecency and vulgarity are rampant on the london stage from which flows the dramatic stream that irrigates the whole country whilst shelley's chenchi tragedy and ibsen's ghosts are forbidden and have in fact only been performed once in private that is before audiences of invited non-paying guests it is now so well understood that only plays of the commonest idealist type can be sure of a license in london that the novel and not the drama is the form adopted as a matter of course by thoughtful masters of fiction the merits of the case ought to be too obvious to need restating it is plain that every argument that supports a censorship of the stage supports with tenfold force a censorship of the press which is admittedly an abomination what is wanted is the entire abolition of the censorship and the establishment of free art in the sense which we speak of free trade there is not the slightest ground for protecting theatres against the competition of music halls or for denying to mr grine as a theatrical entrepreneur the freedom he would enjoy as a member of a publishing firm in the absence of a censorship a manager can be prosecuted for an offence against public morals just as a publisher can at present though managers may not touch shelley or ghosts they find no difficulty in obtaining official sanction practically amounting to indemnity for indecencies from which our uncensored novels are perfectly free the truth is that the real support of the censorship comes from those puritans who regard art as a department of original sin to them the theatre is an unmixed evil and every restriction on it again to the cause of righteousness against them stand those who regard art in all its forms as a department of religion the holy war between the two sides has played a considerable part in the history of england and is just now being prosecuted with renewed vigour by the puritans if their opponents do not display equal energy it is quite possible that we shall presently have a reformed censorship ten times more odious than the existing one the very absurdity of which causes it to be exercised with a half-heartedness that prevents the licenser from doing his worst as well as his best the wise policy for the friends of art just now is to use the puritan agitation in order to bring the matter to an issue and then to make a vigorous effort to secure that the upshot shall be the total abolition of the censorship end of section seventeen